Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, August 22nd, 2018. This is episode 2277. And uh, it's Wednesday, so it's interview day. We have a special guest on the line in just a moment. His name is Nathan Kay. He is a licensed professional forester in the state of Maine. He's been practicing forestry for seven years. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Forestry and a Bachelor of Science in Wildlife Ecology from the University of Maine. He believes strongly in the ability of a forest to simultaneously provide for landowner objectives and fulfill part uh, important ecological roles. And he's going to talk to us today about uh, forestry and forestry planning on the homestead. Uh, really definitely geared toward people with a little bit larger lands, you know, several acres or so. But I think it's going to be an interesting interview for everybody out there, even the apartment dweller. We're also going to talk a little bit about, you know, how one becomes a forester, what a forester does, uh, the educational background requirements and things like that. Because I know there's a lot of young people out there looking for something to do, and this is not a bad thing to be in. It really isn't. And we'll also talk about some of the ecological mythology around, you know, the untouched forest and how a lot of things that foresters do could solve a lot of the problems that society is dealing with today, like wildfires and mudslides and, and pest problems and other things like that that seem almost insurmountable. But really, we could make a very dramatic difference for the better with good forest management. And forest management doesn't mean eradicating forests. It actually means creating ongoing sustainable forest systems. We'll talk about that with uh, Nathan in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is the number one sponsor. And what I mean by that is not better than everybody else, but the number one. This is the first, the original Survival Podcast sponsor. That's Safe Castle Royal. They've been a sponsor of the Survival Podcast going all the way back to 2009. They were the very first company that I was like, you know, I've got enough people now. Yes, I'll take you as a sponsor. They'd actually asked earlier. And I told Vic over there, no, I, 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 I'm not ready to take money from someone when there's only a few hundred people listening to the show. And uh, they joined us in 2009. They've been here ever since. They are uh, kind of the go-to, get-everything uh, prepper website. they got the tactical to the practical, the guns to the gardens, and everything in between. You'll find all of it at Safe Castle Royal. They've got a discount membership program. They sell that for $29 a year. You get big discounts on almost everything they sell. Or if you're a member of my MSB, guess what? You get a lifetime membership to their discount vendor program for free. Uh, they, they right there, they pay for your membership in spades over and over again. So check them out. Great sponsor, good supporter. Been with us an awful long time. Safecastle.com. Next up, HarvestEating.com, uh, run by uh, expert council member Chef Keith Snow. Another guy we've been working with, Keith, I think since 2011, something like that. I mean, it, the, the relationships we have with our sponsors are, are kind of amazing when you think about it. The world of podcasting, you know, working with somebody since 2009 or 2011 and 2018 and they're still here and still working with you, that says something. Now, Keith is going to teach you how to make cooking into a life skill. He's got a lot of great stuff. He's got some uh, great online courses like his Paleo Beef course. He's got a great website. He's got a great YouTube channel. He's got a great podcast. He's got a great product line. You can find all of it and more at HarvestEating.com. You do get a discount there if you're an MSB member as well. So check them out today at HarvestEating.com. 
Before we bring Nathan on, let's take a look at this day in history. I don't have a history segment from David Verne at TSP Wiki today, so we'll go back to this day in history. This is August the 22nd, and I'm only going to go back to 1989. There's actually a lot of stuff that happened on August 22nd in history. Definitely some bigger stories than the one that we're going to talk about today. Um, but this one has kind of a special meaning for me. It was on August the 22nd, 1989, that Nolan Ryan registered his 5,000th strikeout. And the reason that that means a lot to me is, is, is a young man that I didn't know yet and a woman I didn't know yet uh, were becoming mother and son. My son Matthew, who's actually my stepson, um, was born on this exact day, 1989, August 22nd. And um, commemorating that, we have a really cool Nolan, signed Nolan Ryan jersey commemorating this day uh, that we had framed for him. Uh, that he has still at his house, commemorating that day, because he was always a huge sports fan, and he's still a, a big uh, uh, Rangers fan. Uh, really loved Nolan Ryan, and there was always kind of that thing, that just he was born on the day that this happened. So I know that's not a big deal for a lot of people, but it is a hell of a cheap for a Major League Baseball pitcher to get 5,000 strikeouts, especially back in 1989, is a major, major milestone. Uh, Ryan would actually rack up a total of 5,714 strikeouts, uh, over 1,500 more than his closest competitor. Pretty amazing dude. He was an amazing player, and I think we all probably also remember what I think was Nolan Ryan's finest moment didn't involve a strikeout. It involved a cat named Robin Ventura. Robin played for the White Sox. And Nolan hit him with a ball, pitch. And I don't think Nolan meant to hit him with a pitch, but Robin took it personally and charged the mound. And that is one of the greatest moments in sports history. Uh, Nolan Ryan tattooing uh, Robin Ventura on the head. And I can tell you, as a guy that used to go to a lot of baseball games back when I first moved to Texas, uh, when they came to town and Ventura got to bat, everybody cheered for him, kind of a jeer cheer, and there would be a lot of calls like, hey, Robin, charge the mound and stuff like that. So uh, it was one of those mistakes that you keep living over and over again. But on this day in 1989, Nolan Ryan hits that 5,000 strikeout mark. That's that's just amazing, and I, I believe that's a record that still stands. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of today's show. Before I bring our special guest on, I just want to remind you that we, we do now have an Instagram channel. It's called It's a Jack Life. It's a Jack Life, all one word. That's our handle on Instagram. You can find us there. I put out a blog post today. Uh, we decided we want to try to get it off the ground kind of quickly. We are running a contest, and you can win a free Lifetime Member Support Brigade membership. Uh, there's a drink that I came up with yesterday. It's lemon and ginger and vodka. It's really good. And uh, I put a picture of it out on Facebook. And my wife said, I won't put it on uh, Instagram. And my, my nephew, Nick, said, hey, you're trying to get Instagram off the ground. Do a contest. So here's how it works. You, you go to that post on Instagram, and you, you give us your suggested name for that drink. When we, we're going to sit down on, on Sunday morning, we're going to read all of them, pick our favorite one, and whichever one we think is the best one, we're going to give you a free lifetime MSB. Additionally, if you tag two friends on Instagram when you do that so that they see us and maybe follow us, we'll put you in a drawing to win a one-year membership. And this is where it gets interesting. Let's say you're already a lifetime member and you win. Well, you can sell it. 
I mean, I sell that membership for $300 a couple times a year. I'll sell maybe 10, 15 of them, and that's it. And I sell out of them in a couple minutes. So if, if you didn't want it, you could sell it and make $300. Bucks. Uh, you might get more for it because it's a guaranteed one, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. It's up to you. It's a free market. Um, or you could give it away if you were a generous person. If you were an annual person and you want another year, you could just add a year or you could give it to a friend or a family member or something like that. So there's a little something in it for everybody. And uh, there's a post I put out about it today. And uh, you can just get on over our Instagram channel and find that, that post or just go to the post on the blog and you can link straight into that one. And uh, let us, you know, give us, give us some ideas for this drink. It's, it's, it's pretty nice. Um, on another uh, real quick note, those of you that are on my email list, uh, I made a change. A. Weber has been screwing up. And what it's been doing is like a week's worth of posts are all getting sent out on a weekend. So you're not getting any emails, and then all of a sudden on Saturday or Sunday you get like 15 emails. And I got some hate mail and angry people like I did it on purpose or something. Of course I wouldn't do that on purpose. It certainly didn't help me to have that happen in the middle of an MSB sale, did it? Um, so what I've done is I've turned off the automation, and I have a template now. And as I do my posts throughout the day, I drop in the new ones. And at the end of the day, when I do my last thing of the day, I throw it all in. So now you get one email with everything that happened that day in it. That means that if I put something out in the morning, you're not going to see that email till the afternoon, but you're going to get one email with you know three or four or two or whatever number of posts that went up that day instead of if on a busy day where I might have five posts, you don't get five emails. So I think everybody will like it better. And if you haven't been on the email list because you don't want to get that many emails, it'll be one email a day from now on. So consider signing up for the email list. You can do that at the website. All right, with that, let's go ahead and bring our special guest on again, uh, Nathan Kay. He's a professional forester. Uh, licensed in the state of Maine, been practicing forestry for seven years. He's here today to talk to us about forest management on the homestead. And with that, hey, Nathan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks for having me. It's great to be on. I'm glad to have you on today, dude. Um, so we're going to talk about forestry today, and you are a forester by trade. But but let's go back to, like, I don't know, you're in senior year of high school, checking some chick out in study hall or something and trying to figure out what to do with your life. What path leads you to where you are now? Yeah, so I started out going to the University of Maine. I was initially enrolled in wildlife ecology. And then after my first semester there, uh, one of the professors pulled me aside and said, hey, you seem to really have a knack for this. You seem to like the uh, forestry side of things. Um, did you ever think about going to get a double degree? So I enrolled to ha in the forestry program at University of Maine, so both wildlife ecology and forestry. Um, at the same time, I was also in the National Guard uh, and ended up getting deployed to Iraq in 2006. So my college career took a little bit of a hiatus, uh, came back from deployment, finished my degree. Uh, then I did a few more things with the military and then happened to land uh, what I'd consider my dream job. So I currently work for a large private landowner in western Maine and uh, also have a little side hustle going on, practicing forest management. Very cool, man. So kind of help us out here for people that are listening today, because people hear things like forestry and forester and, and, and things like that. What exactly is a forester? What, what does that mean when you tell somebody, I'm a forester? So a forester is uh, somebody who manages forests using their knowledge of the science of how trees grow. That could be anywhere on a scale of hundreds of thousands of acres on large industrial-sized landowners all the way down to small private consulting foresters who manage for a couple acres for 
for private landowners. So uh, they use their knowledge of how trees grow to tend the forest, either through harvesting or allowing the trees to, to grow up, de- depending what state they're on. Um, they also have a knowledge of the applicable laws that apply to forestry, a knowledge of the markets on what can be sold uh, from a timber harvest. Essentially, trees are an asset that can be sustainably harvested to provide a periodic income to a landowner. So, uh, forest. Oh. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I thought you. Yeah, I was going to say that a forester. The, the thing about a forester is they work in the best interest of the landowner, so they use all their knowledge and their experience to represent the landowner and their objectives. So, compared to um, a logger who is looking after cutting trees. And I'm not, I'm not saying that all loggers are like that. There's some great ones out there who will represent the landowner well, but a forester, they essentially have a fiduciary responsibility to look after the landowner's best interest. So what I was, was going to say there then is, like, you know, we probably have some younger people out here that are trying to figure out what to do with their lives. So if you wanted to go down this path, like, what, what are the educational requirements? Is this something it's good to have a degree for? And if so, like, what would you, what would you get a degree in, like, biology? Because I, I, I guess there are some programs that are specific to forestry, but generally speaking, uh, you don't usually see that offered at a university. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I actually just uh, had a impromptu interview. A young uh, graduating senior was asking me some questions about forestry. Um, sat down he asked me the best route to go uh generally most state universities will have a forestry program and it's specific specifically to forestry whether it's called forest management or forest ecology something along those lines some people do get an undergraduate in biology and then go get a a master's degree in forestry but a a lot of state land-grant universities will offer a forestry specific program Um, what i've seen Mostly is depending where that university is, they, they tend to focus on that geographic region. There's some principles that, you know, cross ge- geographic regions, but like in the Northeast, it's very, very tailored to the Northeast forest types, whereas you black go walnuts, Oregon, black cherry, yeah. hickory, you know, beechwood, exactly. conifers. Exactly. Okay, yeah. sure, it would make um, sense. One, one beautiful thing about forestry that I, I love about the, the profession is there's the science of the trees there there's art involved in the the prescriptions that you that you write for a forest for a timber harvest um there's technology involved whether it's gps technology or gis there's engineering with road building when you're entering an area to to harvest there's hydrology there's wildlife wildlife is a huge aspect on it um everything's practiced outside so it's uh, it's really a beautiful profession, in my opinion. But there's, like I said, there's business to projecting out incomes for a landowner, what they can expect to see for returns. So, very cool. It's a pretty neat profession overall. And and the the concept as a whole would be civiculture and forest management. So, kind of talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, silviculture is the art and science of managing forest structure and composition to achieve desired landowner objectives. And then Silvix is how trees grow and develop within the ecosystem. So given different tree species, they may respond differently to different treatment types based on whether it's their longevity on the landscape, uh, how they respond to different light conditions in the forest. 
there's shade tolerant trees, there's shade intolerant trees. So like a shade intolerant tree species would be white birch. It grows very well in open conditions. When it's in a closed canopy, it doesn't grow so well. Um, and then that's all driven by the landowner objectives. So whether it's for wildlife use or a sustained yield for uh, for income or to pass on to future generations and their family. So. And so you kind of mentioned that you might do like projections on incomes and things like that. Um, how could a person that has a piece of land, how, how can them working with a forester help them attain their desired goals and their objectives? So it would start with um, the forester getting a feel for what their objectives are, uh, and then you could do you do a stand delineation. So a forest stand is a, a like like composition of trees, groupings of trees, and then you the forester would go through and he'd do a formal inventory uh, for those stands. So he goes out and he he'll count trees and get a good statistical sampling of the trees, the species composition, the heights, the diameters of those trees and then he, he'll be able to get a good count on the, the trees per acre, the cords per acre, the basal area per acre in that given stand. Um, to back up a little bit, a basal area is just a, a density a density measurement of a stand of trees where it's measured at the four and a half feet above ground level that's called DBH in the forestry world, diameter of breast height. It's essentially a cross-sectional area of a tree at four and a half feet, and then that's added up throughout that forested acre to give a density. And those me- those measurements are used for more complex, um, more complex formulas down the road. There's decision support software that allows a forester to look at different management techniques along the way, so they can they can put that those raw that raw data into this database and then they can manipulate it in a series of models and say if I cut eight cords per acre in here what's this going to grow into in 10 years and they can use that as a as a measurement to project what can be harvested sustainably over time yeah and I guess you know you mentioned like so if you'd be with me and I was a landowner determining my goals I, I guess the other side of that though would be that Maybe a lot of landowners really don't have goals and objectives for their land. They really don't know what they should be doing. So you could probably help them figure that out kind of the, the back way around, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you could go, uh, the best way to do it would just be to walk through and, and speak with a landowner and say, okay, so what we have here is an uneven-aged hardwood stand. There's a lot of old growth, older growth characteristics. You've got some large trees that will grow into snags, or you can point out, you know, this is what this tree potentially would be worth if you were, if you chose to harvest. Um, you can just talk them through the process, and then maybe they could start to develop some goals and objectives based on that. So that would be a, if somebody didn't have an idea of what their objectives would be, that would be a way to do it. You could ask them, there's other social objectives, such as you want to create hiking trails, or you want to create an aesthetically pleasing stand of forest to walk through, or you want to create an uneven age softwood stand, or you've got multiple age classes represented. Um, somebody may be really into songbirds, a management plan I'm working on right now. The landowners are into songbirds, so creating small openings for that edge effect for songbird habitat is their is their desired objectives. Yeah, I've seen a lot of different things people manage, you know, forests and woodlots for. 
uh, there was a there's a, a forum online, an old school forum. I'm not even sure if it's around anymore, but it was it was around back in the 90s. That's how long ago I was on it. It was called the Squirrel Dog Forum, and it was uh, people that were enthusiasts about uh, hunting squirrels with dogs, which is a pretty small niche. But there was a whole uh, board on that forum dedicated to management of forests for you know tree squirrels, which is not something yep. you would generally think that somebody would want to do, but I guess the goals are as varied as, 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 as the people that, that own the land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, some people may just have a financial uh, goal in mind. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's all very much based on the landowner objectives. That's one of the beautiful things I like about it. It's almost very, you know, anarchy driven where it's the landowner wants to do this. And that's, you know, as long as it we've also got the constraints of laws as it stands right now. That's a different policy issue yeah. <laughs> that we're not going to solve today. But it's, you know, really driven on landowner objectives. Well, in America, I mean, with some few exceptions, pretty much when it comes to your land, you can generally do with it as you please, especially when it comes to uh, timber harvest or timber planting and things like that. W what about the guy that's like, you know, I really do want to take some, uh, to some, some lumber out of here. I want to try to make some money off my land, but I also want to preserve old growth. Uh, there's probably a lot of ways that, you know, you can look at certain trees and go, this is a, a huge old tree. But this really isn't a great one to take for timber. This is, you know, like how do you differentiate stuff like that, right? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, sometimes I ask that myself. A tree may look perfectly sound, and then once it's, you know, a tree is standing, and then once it's on its side as a log, and you look at it, and it's rotted throughout. It's it's sometimes difficult to do. Other times there's indicators you can tell what a tree is going to look like on the inside, whether there's some kind of scarring or there's a... Uh, um, you might see like uh, boring insects are starting to come into the bark, so those might be some uh, indicators. Um, a while back, I read a study where they looked at uh, they had professional log scalers go through and scale trees while they're standing, and then they harvested it, and then they looked at it after, and it was almost like a 25% reduction in the grade. So even professional scalers have a hard time looking at a tree and valuing it wow. um, while it's standing. Uh, that's usually with hardwoods with softwood trees you know they're used for dimensional lumber so that's oftentimes a little bit easier to do you get into the hardwoods you're talking veneer you're talking hardwood flooring so you really need a high quality tree where the grain is very so he's making a mantle out of that application yeah so he's making a fireplace mantle out of a piece of black walnut they're really concerned about the grain uh where yes, yeah exactly if, if you're making stud lumber for a wall you're not going to see it anyway you don't really care Exactly, and you, you know, a tall, straight spruce tree is going to make a fine piece of stud wood. Whether there's a small little bit of rot in the bottom, that can be butted back by the logger, and then it clears up after a couple inches. So, I guess another thing you would be doing then too, though, is like, okay, so we're starting to have some damage on this tree. It's 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 harvestable now. You might as well harvest this one because let's say it's a, it's an ash, and borers are starting to get to it or something like that. So you could make the determination that this tree is going to go into decline now. So this is the one you want to pull or this is the group you want to pull out i guess yeah yeah that's that's one technique on it and uh we we're actually we struggle with this on the landscape level you know you've used the example of the american chestnut you know that there's some that have been naturally resistant to the blight but they pretty much wholesale clear cut of the chestnut stands whereas if they had waited for them to to decline you know invariably i'm sure there may be some ash out there that may be resistant to it You know, those are on a case-by-case -case scenario. But, you know, in general, if it's starting to decline, that's the time to, to take the uh, take the tree, harvest that tree. I think that one, I think there'll be a cycle on that anyway, though. I don't think it's, I don't think it's like blight. Like, blight's a disease, it stays. 
right? Emerald yeah. ash borers are an insect. When there's not a lot of ash trees, there'll be less ash borers, and then you'll have a rejuvenation of that cycle. To me, that's more of a natural cycle of things than a, than a foreign blight, I guess. But I, I do think, are those yeah. things actually a foreign, or would you say it, invasive? Uh, are, they, are they native to the to North America? Well, the emerald ash borer and another one that we're that's on the horizon is the Asian longhorn beetle. Those both are um, non-native invasive species. In the northeast, there's the spruce budworm, which infects balsam fir stands uh, first. That has a natural cycle. It has peaks and valleys in it, in which the trees are able to respond and the foresters are able to ma manipulate the, the stand compositions to anticipate that form of, of insect. Gotcha. So um, what sort of information uh, does a forest management plan include? So I, I guess if somebody retains a forester, they're going to want something of the guidance at the end of that. Uh, yeah, so... A forest management plan, that'll include the goals and objectives of the landowner. Uh, there'll generally be background information on the woodlot, such as historic land use. Uh, there's a lot of land that's come back from pasture land, and now it's grown in with trees, uh, harvesting practices for background information. Uh, there'll be uh, things such as boundary lines, just general information on the, the woodlot. Uh, there's a lot of people who own woodlots and they don't have any idea where their boundaries are, so that's good to know. Um, you know, like the saying, fences make good neighbors, boundary lines make good neighbors too sometimes. Yeah. Um, the the applicable legal protection zones that may exist on a woodlot, so for example here in Maine in unorganized townships there's the Land Use Planning Commission which um, deals with certain protection zones, whether it's streamside buffers or lakeside buffers. So knowing where those exist is, is good to have in a forest management plan. Um, soil types that are present in a woodlot, the USGS Web Soil Survey is a great great tool uh, for the forester. It's, it's on the, the macro scale, but you can get a good broad overall vision for what the underlying soil types are. Um, with that comes hydrology, uh, subsurface hydrology, what might what types of trees may grow in those soil types, whether it's rocky, steep. Um, wildlife considerations is often in a forest management plan, whether it's being used as deer wintering habitat or if there's evidence of excessive browse from deer species, whether it's moose or elk or something like that. Um, then there's the stand descriptions and conditions. So that would come from the stand delineation process that the forester would do. Um, they can give a general description of the stand, uh, forest inventory on that stand, desired future conditions, um, how to achieve those conditions. Essentially, it's called a prescription in forestry. So a forester will write a prescription on which trees to cut, which trees to retain, um, what density to reduce it to if a thinning is being conducted to meet those desired future conditions. Um, then there, generally there's a harvest plan or schedule. So in you know year X, you'll harvest stand A. In year Y, you'll harvest stand B. Um, and then just maps of the property that are included in the forest management plan. So... Uh, some other things that I'll throw in a forest management plan is any any invasive species 
if I find any. There's a few uh, invasive plant species up here in Maine that uh, pop up every once in a while. That's good to have in there, just so the landowners aware of it, and they can they can choose to um, to manage those as they see fit. Um, yeah, so there's a uh, there's a few things that go into a forest yeah. management plan. What about plan planning uh, replanting? So, like, if we take a lot of trees out, I mean, I know in the northeastern woods, like, you know, oaks, hickories, walnuts, it's almost impossible to have them not just come back. You, yeah, yeah. I mean, I now and as soon as you create a glade, uh, it, I mean, our our yard that we had when I lived in Pennsylvania, you had to go out every spring and worry about you know acorns would land in the yard and there'd be baby oak trees growing everywhere. But you might have some more directed, or, or do you, you know what what's a general strategy in your your ecosystem anyway? Yeah, so I, I get this question quite a bit. If I'm given a tour of a of a operation, they'll ask, you know, when are you when are you going to come back and replant? And I I joke with them. I say, you know, in Maine we kind of have a problem. You cut one tree, and ten more are going to take its place. So in Maine, we're very fortunate that natural regeneration is is present, and uh, trees generally reforest themselves after one is is uh, harvested. Now, in the southeast, I'm not an expert in southeast forestry by any means, but my understanding is a lot of pine plantations. So they'll they'll plant pine stands on a rotation. Uh, it grows very quickly, and um, then they'll come back in and reforest an area. Uh, so sometimes you'll use um, plantations in an area. So in the northeast, we've got the American beech, which has a beech bark disease. Um, a lot of times that's a very difficult uh, stand condition to treat. So sometimes they'll just put a plantation in there after a, a clear cut. So that's one example I could think of with, with reforesting an area. Very cool. So um, what are the so maybe some current tax plans? Because you, I was looking at your notes, you are talking about how um, people can use forestry to actually reduce their tax burden. Yeah, so in Maine we have a program that's called the Tree Growth Tax Law. I, um, there's one in New Hampshire, I believe Vermont has the same general type of thing. So essentially it's a current use program where a landowner can enroll in this program and it reduces the tax burden on the landowner based on the value of the trees rather than the highest highest value use, which is generally development. So it's it's a program where landowner enrolls in it. Um, they'll there's a commitment to it. If they unenroll, there's generally a penalty. And then in Maine, it's tiered based off the number of years that a given acre has been in tree growth. So if they put it in for one year and then they unenroll it, the next is going to be the highest penalty. I got you. If they keep it in for 20 years, then it's going to be a lower penalty. Uh, the purpose of the program in Maine was to ensure fiber supply for wood consumers such as sawmills um, and paper mills. Now, that, with that given said, you have to have a forest management plan on place, uh, in place for the forested parcel. There has to be at least 10 acres of forested land in Maine. Other states may vary. Um, and then you just have to follow the forest management plan. So, if you don't have any merchantable trees, that doesn't mean you have to go in and you have to cut it again. So it's a, it's all based off what the forest management plan says the landowner wants for an objective. So a lot of people say, oh, just you put it in there and you have to 
clear cut it or you have to harvest it. It's that's not how it's set up to be. It's set up to follow landowner objectives and it gives an incentive to keep timberland in timberland. So, if somebody is looking for help from a forester, how do they find who they need to be talking to, you know, where they are? Yeah, so a good place to start would be your state forest service or department of natural resources. Um, they may have insight on on who to contact, or they might have uh, information. They may they may provide forest management plans for you. Uh, district foresters may have information on who to contact. Uh, there's professional organizations that exist, such as the Society of American Foresters or the Association of Consulting Foresters, uh, where there it's a professional trade organization. People become members and then their names listed on this on their website uh, the state I know the state of Maine they maintain a list of licensed professional foresters uh, that's another thing there's 13 states in the United States that require a foresters license and then the the remaining 75% of the country doesn't have a foresters license requirement so that's uh, that's a good way to start to find out information on forestry And I mean, are are you generally dealing with someone that works for a government body, or there are other private uh, companies that do this too? And you know, how would somebody yeah, so, maybe make a decision between the two if there are? Yeah. So generally, uh, consulting foresters are private private individuals or private companies. There are some companies that do it on a larger scale uh, for landowners, and then there's just private individuals who set up a business doing consulting forestry. Um, it's it, it runs the gamut. There's There's government organizations that that do such that do forest management, uh, and all the way to private individuals. So, it all depends on the locality. And I mean, what's the what is the cost of you know how does that break down? Is it like an hourly rate? Is it depend on the size yeah, of the I, land? I, you know. Yeah, I've seen I've seen everything. I've seen on a per acre rate. I've seen hourly rate. It all depends on what the uh, what that business sets up for uh, for their rate. So it varies across the board. So it'd be, the landowner would have to contact the forester, and they could, you know, they could interview a couple of them. They could ask to see some examples of what they've done. They could ask around. Um, yeah, so definitely getting somebody with a good reputation is the way to go. Well, and it certainly sounds like it can be something that pays for itself. We can we can take it, figure out what timber to harvest. That's you know going to be profitable if we can cut a tax burden. So it's the kind of consulting you want to be in where you pay for yourself, right? Yeah, exactly. That's that's definitely a great way to look at it. Um, generally, management plan will you know the forester will will charge a fee for that, and then when it comes to harvesting timber, they just take a percentage of the cut if they're looking after the harvest. If they're finding the logging contractor, uh, that's one thing mm. about a forester is they've generally got a they've got a good knowledge of the equipment mix that would be best suited in a in a stand of timber. So whether it's they If the landowner wants a very light touch to do an improvement harvest, then they could go get a cable skidder operator with a chainsaw. You know, they're going to have very small trails. Um, if they're dealing with large hardwoods that should be directionally felled to protect other trees, then potentially a feller buncher where a tree grabs onto it and then places it in one one spot. So it runs the gamut on the equipment mixes. So that's another reason to, to consult with a forester. I didn't really get so it's really much more you know depending on what you want a, a full service type of relationship where it's not just hey let me uh, let me tell you what you should do but 
well, if you want for the for the certain fee, then I'll come in and manage it for you so that the landowner really can be almost completely hands-off other than basically approving and directing what he's looking for. Yes, exactly. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, yeah, generally, so there's two types of, of uh, harvests that are conducted, whether it's, it's called a stumpage harvest or a service contract harvest, where a stumpage harvest where a logger will come in and say, this is what I think the wood is worth, and I'll pay pay you in one lump sum for it. And that's where the forester comes in. He has a knowledge of the markets. He has a knowledge of what a equipment mix costs, and he can say, okay, that's that's fair. The landowner will accept that level of return, or no, you're trying to take advantage of them. We need more money for it. And then a service contract is essentially a, a logger would be paid on a per-ton rate or per-cord per rate where the landowner would essentially own the wood all the way up to the gate of the mill. The mill would pay the landowner, and then the landowner pays the logger. Gotcha. So having that knowledge of what wood is worth is, you know, it, it pays for itself. Like you mentioned, a forester should pay, his services should pay for themselves. I've got an example where I, I know somebody who um, they consulted with a logger directly. They wanted to put in some pasture land. They had 18 acres of their own wood lot, but they looked at the, the trees as not having value, and they, they gave the wood to the logger, and then the logger still sent them a bill for his time. It's the first person I know in the history of the world to lose money on a clear cut, you know? Yeah. So if you just consulted with a forester and said, no, your, your wood is worth this, you should be making a return on this to essentially pay for your pasture to be put in with excavation time after the fact. So they essentially got taken advantage of by not knowing what the value of the wood is is worth. Well, yeah, and I so it, uh, I know of a much smaller example of that. Uh, a friend of mine that was visiting said he had just helped out this this elderly lady where she was paying a, a great deal of money to have a, a very large, and it did need to come down, walnut tree uh, removed. Well, the guy said that the burl on that tree was probably worth about $12,000. It had a huge yeah. burl on it. And these people were going to charge her to cut the tree down and take it away. Yeah. And that's and like then, one old lady in one tree. So yeah. you kind of figure out, well, what what could you get taken for on an acre or 10 or 100? So your question is what could what could a one-acre harvest yield? Yeah. I mean, well, I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying like, Actually, it's a great question. I didn't mean it that way, so we'll have you answer that. But what I was kind of making the point is, if this poor old lady could have got taken for twelve grand on one tree, oh, you know, oh how yeah, much yeah. money could a person be raked out of on an acre or ten or a hundred if they don't have someone that's you know knowledgeable and a good advocate for them? They could be taken for you know hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars on larger land blocks. I would expect. But yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. You know, a hundred acre woodlot, yeah, it could be. Could bring in you know sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars to the landowner. You know, there's if there happens to be one you know sugar maple bird's eye veneer tree on there that goes for you know twenty five grand per thousand board feet. You know, that's that's something that the landowner is going to want to <laughs> want to see a return on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and you know, we're talking about money here, so yeah, you should pay for yourself if you do your job right, but. I'm a big believer in getting back every penny of the government's taken from me, however I can do it. So are there things like federal cost share programs, something maybe through NRCS people can use to help offset the initial cost of working with a forester? 
Yeah, so the uh, NRCS has what's called uh, conservation activity plans, and then they have technical service assistance, and that's there's a setup on a um, it's it's put into bins on per acre. I don't know the exact uh, breakdown, but it's just hypothetically, you know, zero to fifty acres, and then fifty to hundred, and it's it's put into bins, and it just pays a, a that bin pays a certain rate to have a forest management plan written um, under the NRCS program. Uh, then they're very technical and in-depth, and uh, it, it it pays for the service of the forester. And then they also provide technical service assistance if there's a certain condition that should be treated on the forested acre. Uh, they have assistance for that. So like a conservation activity plan has to be in place before any technical service assistance can be can be delivered to help offset the costs of those those management fees. So like an example would be with the, the beech bark disease, there's there's fees available to do a mechanical removal of the diseased beech where it would essentially be a cost to the landowner. They're getting this condition treated um, through this, these NRCS funds. That's just one example. Um, but there's, there's other ones for wildlife conditions. If uh, a landowner wants to create habitat for... For cottontail rabbit, they can they can use NRCS funds to help offset the cost of creating cottontail rabbit habitat. Get NRCS money for making bush piles. <laughs> yeah, yep, exactly. So that, that's on the federal level, and then there's there's state programs. You know, landowners have to go consult their individual state. Uh, Maine has one called the Woods Wise Program, where that's that's for writing forest management plans to help offset the cost of a forest management plan. Very cool. And I mean, we have a lot of folks here that have pretty small blocks of land. Is there like you know, a point where you'd say, you know, you probably are better off, you know, not trying to take this approach? Like how how big of a piece of land really makes sense to work with a professional on on something like this? Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't have a, an acre number. Like, I own two acres. One of it is forested, you know, so I yeah. go out there and I cut a little bit of wood to, you know, have campfires in the summertime. It's, you know, it, there, there's a certain number where it doesn't become economically feasible for, you know, to bring in heavy equipment to log land, and that all that's all based on whatever you're going to use uh, for an equipment mix. Now, there's also times, you know, using a forester, he might recognize your land has good potential to to log it in, say, April. When that logger would be out of work, but yet you have, you know, very rocky ground, you could have somebody come in and harvest during a specific time of the year to help offset the cost of, you know, compared to summertime. You can use, you know, his the forester's knowledge to, to find that equipment mix and fine-tune things and, you know, come up with, you know, pretty use the term lucrative deal for a logger to come in and, you know, otherwise he'd be at home not collecting a paycheck. So that's one of the, uh, one of the aspects, if that makes sense. No, it does. And, and what about like, do you guys ever work with people that are like, I actually want to reforest an area. I actually want to create a forest where there isn't one now. Uh, yeah, that would be, um, that's very very easy to accomplish. Um, one one issue generally with that would be um, the other other plants that are already in there. So say you've got field, um, the grass that may be present, you know, it might take a while for those seedlings to come up. So they might come up with a plan to like mow the grass first and then and then uh, plant it. So that way those germinants, those seedlings have a have a chance to 
to get some sunlight and put in some roots into the ground. Um, there's also, I do know there are NRCS funds for reforestation like that. So that is something that can be done. And then it all depends on landowner objectives. There's, um, depending on what they want to have come back in, you could plant poplar or aspen. You could plant um, spruce to have a, you know, a spruce forest. It all depends on um, the landowner objectives. People plant oaks. I've heard of um, chestnuts being planted to bring back the American chestnut. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about a few of the things that we have as, as problems and how you might see them. And one was chestnuts. Like, I, I recently had a guest on that taught, that's, that's doing a lot of work with the hybrid chestnuts. And like, yeah. do you ever see a world in which we restore chestnuts to the North American forests? Uh, I, I don't know that we'll ever find like the magic, you know, full genetic American chestnut, but. You know, the hybridization seems to produce some very, you know, some very blight resistant, in fact, some blight immune uh, trees. And then yeah. I'm not a fan of GMOs in some ways, but I, I'm not, people think I'm, you know, if, you, if you're against something, uh, a part of something, then you must be against it all. So then you're anti science or anti GMO. Like my problem with genetically modifying uh, soybean is so, when you can, so you can spray Roundup on it that I'm going to eat. That I have a problem with. The concept itself, Like, I, I think there might be something valid in these genetically modified chestnuts where basically they're taking the resistant gene from the Chinese chestnut, but they're keeping the characteristics of an American chestnut. Do you think that, like, are we on a path? Or, you know, you probably know more than me, and I'm saying is like, there's groups working on this. Like, do you see it coming to fruition at some point? Yeah, I definitely see that as being valuable. You know, it's, I, my understanding is 99% American chestnut and 1% uh, Chinese chestnut in that in that hybridized mix that you're, you're talking about. I mean, I've, I see no issue in that. If it's got all the characteristics of the American chestnut, um, then, you know, have at it. I'm for it. Uh, one thing with that, you know, they're, the chestnut seedlings, they're, they're very heavily browsed by, by deer and other, other forest creatures. Um, so, like, reforestation costs on that would be very high if you want to protect that with the exclosures until it can be out of a point of... Um, of the browse line yeah so it, it can get pretty pricey if you're doing a large forested landscape it would seem like like the long the long view would be more like let's go you know on a hundred acres let's put in a thousand trees and protect them because yeah. the, the thing yeah. of the, the, you know like that was all you know everything always ate chestnut seedlings but when you have one mammoth chestnut the sheer number of nuts that it drops you know i i remember seeing old black and white photographs of these guys like, you know, with some of the first cars and horse and buggies too with carts behind them with a number 10 coal shovel shoveling chestnut and chinga pin uh, as, as livestock feed and, yeah, and, and yeah. just going oh my god, you know, I mean so I guess that that could be a strategy too because you're right, like, we put in at the farm we had in West Virginia we put in like 6,000 chestnut trees oh, wow. and, and but they were Stun method, Mark Shepard, really close together type thing, and you're gonna you know take some out every every year until you end up with your your choice ones. But that was you know in a big line, so we were able to just put electro fence on both sides of it, you know along a yeah, swale so you, line, and, and like that kept them out. But if you had tried to do that across, let's say 30 acres, it was open. Oh my God! I mean, to protect that many trees from squirrels, deer, and everything else that eats either the nut or the seedling, yeah, I could see where that would be difficult. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I'd imagine 30 acres. I mean, if you get just that much 
out there and there is also say there's browse outside of that 30 acres you know a couple of chestnuts will get browsed within that 30 acres but eventually over time some of them are going to reach up above the browse line so we've we kind of run into that up here in the northeast with deer and moose browse and i was i was talking with a logger and he's like geez don't you think we should just do this i'm like well if you think about it you know you've got 2,000 seedlings here eventually you know 200 of them are going to reach up above the point where they're not getting browsed anymore. Yeah. So I think just, you know, sheer overwhelming numbers, numbers yeah. would be the way to go versus, you know, one one or two chestnuts in your front yard and then, you know, yeah. one or two chestnuts gets mowed down the next night. <laughs> I got you. Um, yeah. I know this is a different ecosystem, but what is your take on some of the problems we're having with, like, the forest fires in, in California? A lot of people in your industry seem to think that California's whole – Touch not nothing uh, attitude. You know everything should be left as it is. Is is a big problem. And do you think effective forest management uh, in those areas could reduce uh, forest fires? Yeah. Um, so I've got to dig back to my university main days in my fire e- ecosystem class. Hope my professor's not listening. But uh, <laughs> my my knowledge of the fire there are fire adapted ecosystems out there where some of the pines are called serotonous cones where they have a sort of a waxy um, covering on them and when they melt in the fire then they disperse their seeds and then their bark is also resistant to being burned. Um, they grew up, those ecosystems grew up very fire adapted where you had grass in the understory. It would burn periodically very fast and quick and it wouldn't climb up into the crowns. Mm. And then we stopped putting out forest fires and then the, the brush started growing in and then you started seeing more regeneration of other tree species. And then you start creating these ladder fuels where it can, it can climb up into the crowns. So yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that with good, scientific sound forest management just not wholesale clear cutting just to say we're doing forestry you know it should be adapted to the ecosystem um and those are major policy level you know high level policy decisions made at the state and federal level um but i'm i'm on board with that as long as it's scientifically sound and it has has good science backing it then i'm i'm for it you know we those landscapes adapted under fire you know yeah. eons ago and then we stepped in and said, oh, no, we're going to stop these brush fires. Well, those, br- those small brush fires had a purpose. Cleaning so they, out that not, undergrowth. Exactly, cleaning out the undergrowth and then allowing the fire-adapted tree species to regenerate through that serotonous cone process. I remember a, a lecture Bill Mollison was doing, and he was talking about how, like, one of your greatest defenses against fire is a giant oak tree, and the class was all, like, looking at him like he was an idiot. And he's like, really? Take a match and go try to light one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, like so. It's, 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 these big trees, they only actually go up when there's enough going on to 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 cause. We, yeah, everybody's tried when you're a kid, especially, and you build a campfire and you go find a green log and you throw it in there and it hisses and sputters, and it takes a lot to get that thing to burn. You get enough coals down, you can throw anything in there, it's going to burn. And, and that's yeah, kind of exactly. what's happening in these forests. There's enough subfuel to then once it goes, it doesn't matter. It's 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 yeah. all gonna go, and it's it seems idiotic to me. And I also think that like another thing that I've seen that I really just shake my head and go, I know I'm just an uneducated redneck from Texas, but the 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 another western state, you know, like Colorado, where they've had these uh, these pines killed by the beetles, and they leave them all, and there's, there's you know a thousand acres of standing dead tree, 
and you're like, this this can't end well. And that's a resource. That's actually, you know, it's terrible that those beetles killed those pines, but that blue fungus in that wood is is gorgeous as a resource. This could all be harvested and, and brought back into something, but they leave it stand there, and it seems like, well, you got no erosion protection as those trees die. Uh, you got hmm. potential for a huge fire. And I remember when I saw that in, uh, in uh, what is it, I can't think of the place now. It's up in northern Colorado. Uh, anyway, there's a, right up there at Rocky Mountain National Forest, there's a, a, a town, and I love the place, and I can't think of the name of it, but we were there, and I remember looking at it and going, man, if you get good range, this is gonna be a, it's gonna, the whole town's going to be full of mud. And yeah. Yeah. it was a year later. They got torrential rains that washed out roads and everything, and the whole town flowed with mud. And, well, what did you expect? And, and I just don't understand that mentality. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's unfortunate. Um, I feel that sometimes, you know, when people are anti-logging, they're obviously I'm not naive to the fact that there's been abuses in the past sure. of of forest management practices. Um, but as you know, professionals, we need to educate people that there's such a thing as sound forest management, and whether it's a, a stay out approach, a do nothing approach, or yeah, you can you can thin this stand, and it's going to be resilient at the end of the day it's a renewable resource you know people build houses out of two by fours and two by sixes it's it's a resource that's used Dude, people would say and, that they, uh, they never live in plastic houses right or you know it's yeah houses. exactly it, it's estes park was the place i was trying to think of like uh, but like another thing that i see go around like in memes and stuff on facebook occasionally is i see these pictures of like these massive redwoods that have been cut down and you know how this is atrocity and i'm like they don't really do that anymore. Like when they're, if they take a tree like that down anymore, that tree was either dead or dying at the point that they yeah. remove a tree like that. Like, and I think there is a lot of misinformation uh, about forestry yeah. as a whole. People think like, well, you know, if you're a forester, you want to come to cut the whole forest down. No, I want to manage the forest. And yeah. I know the growth cycles a shorter growth cycle. Uh, when I when I bring it down to this, but it is the same theory. I remember as a kid, like, my grandfather sending me out to prune his grapevines or sending me out to prune uh, currant bushes or even some of just the other shrubs or my grandmother having me prune back her roses. And it was like the greatest thing I could do to get that plant to be huge and beautiful that year was to cut it way back. And that when yeah. I cut it way yeah. back, that stimulated growth. And that's a single thing, a single grapevine or a single rose bush or a, a single rose of Sharon tree. But... In a forest, if we don't over-harvest, that is the same thing that happens. When you remove, you create openings, you create airflow, you create glades, and that is where new growth and new birth comes from. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one thing I'd add upon that is um, there's having an outlet. To do good forest management, you, you really having an outlet for that low-value wood to be able to do those thinnings is very important, whether it's, you know, for pellets or for firewood. Um, those, you know, not everything can be a, be turned into hardwood flooring, but being able to go in and Biochar, cut that low-value wood. Yeah, exactly. Um, you can't just go in and high-grade a stand and expect the, the residual trees. You know, in an even-age stand condition where all the trees are the same age, well, there's some that are naturally going to be more genetically superior and are going to be, more resilient and then you're going to have trees that are suppressed or intermediate in the crown canopy that aren't as resilient and they may not respond so you want to cut out those genetically inferior trees and being able to sell those is is very good is is 
good for good forest management, if I'm making sense there. You know, being able to do that is critical. You know, another uh, thing is... One of, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, that's one of the things that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you're just coming in and high-grading the stand, and you're just cutting high-value wood out, and they'll look at a log pile, and it's nothing but firewood. It's like, well, those are all scraggly, and you can look at the the rot that's starting in the butt of the tree and you know you can you can justify it but to the uninformed you know they may just look at as you know you cut a tree down that was you know majestic and towering for the sky but in reality it was scraggly and genetically inferior and you left the tree that was genetically superior in the stand and it, it may it may look thin it may look thin because it ain't had a, it ain't had a chance at the, at the canopy yet Because it exactly. was it was shaded out, and I think people misuse the word natural uh, all the time. Because let's talk like natural. Like first of all, to me, I've always said human beings are natural. We we live here too. We are now. We can do unnatural things because of our intellect and do them for evil or good. But in general, we are a natural species. And if you look at the ecosystems in the United States before uh, we settled them from the European uh, angle. Uh, the people that lived here thinned forests constantly. They used controlled burns. Like the, the the initial people that came over from Europe had no idea they were looking at agriculture in our forests. And then there's there's two animals that are still with us, but they're missing in the numbers they were. And those are elk and bison. And elk in particular, there were like four species of elk that are totally extinct now. And there were elk from Pennsylvania to California. And you're talking about animals the size of a cow. And I'm sure you've seen what happens. Cows actually go in the woods. They like it in there, and they open it up. And then we had 50 million bison running along. And, of course, every time there's a, a movie or something with them in it, you got the bison running through the plains. And they like plains, and they go there. But I can tell you, bison go in the woods, too. We have a nature preserve with a great big field over here uh, just a few miles from me, about 1,300 acres. And they have a couple hundred acres of pasture, and you almost never see the bison because they're never out there. They go in the woods. And I yeah, can, yeah. just can't imagine what millions and millions of elk and 50 million bison migrating and moving through these forest systems did to open it up along with Native Americans. And then we say, well, we want to be natural. We took away the Native Americans. We took away the bison. We took away the, the elk. And, and then we put out every little stinking fire that ever happens. And then we tell people, no, no, you can't touch that. Don't, don't even take a piece of dead wood out with you. And then we think we're being natural. And we've actually removed all the natural elements that, that created those healthy systems. Yeah, exactly. I use, when I'm, when I'm writing a prescription, I'll use a, a t I use a term you use all the time. It's pattern recognition. When I walk into a forested stand, I'll say, you know, look at this. You've got a group of dead trees there. You've got a group of dead trees there. We're going to come in and we're going to design our harvest around that group of dead trees or dying trees. Um, or you'll, I'll say, look, we've got a, a bunch of large overmature trees right here that are at risk of wind throw or are dying so we're going to we're going to target these trees in a thinning regime or suppress trees whatever it may be so it's just that pattern recognition like you mentioned you know mother nature is going to do her thing and just mimicking that natural pattern of succession that's what i that's what i strive to do when i'm when i'm practicing forest management Gotcha. So, can you tell folks like if they want, if they're in the main area and they want to learn more about you, or maybe just they want to check out what you do? Do you have a website or something like that? Yeah. So uh, my my side hustle here is uh, called Valley View Forestry LLC. Uh, it can be reached at nkay at valleyviewforestry.com. That's uh, just something I've started up recently to formalize the process when I'm helping landowners with forest management decisions. Um, 
yeah, so that's that's pretty much how I could be reached. Um, I'd give a shout out to you, Jack, and thank you for that. I've you know, created a WordPress site and cool. a lot of advice you've uh, you've put out on the podcast. I wrote in a couple couple years ago to John Pugliano, and uh, he gave some advice on starting an LLC, and I followed it, and I'm just you know making it happen. So. Awesome, man. That's great. I, I really appreciate you being with us today, Nathan. Uh, thanks for spending some time with us and talking to us about this subject. I think it's a really cool subject, and it probably opened up a lot of eyes today because I do think there is a contingency out there that as soon as they start hearing about cutting a single tree, they don't get it, and and they don't realize that you actually make forests healthy through their management. So, so thanks for being with us today, man. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Jack. I had a blast. I really enjoyed having Nathan on. seems like a really great dude, and I think it was – as guests go, when we get someone like Nathan, who's actually part of the community, listens to the show, we generally get a better guess. Um, we had a gal on about two weeks ago uh, about herbs. And I had a couple of people say, well, maybe you should consider her for the expert counsel. And my, my honest response to that is no way. I, I don't want to be too derogatory, but she told me how much she was a fan of this show like three or four times during that interview. And a couple times off air. And all I left with was, you've never heard a damn minute of this show. And I really try to avoid guests unless there's a special, compelling reason if I know in advance they've never heard an episode of the show. And the reason I do that has nothing to do with me and my ego. It has to do with you guys. You always treat your own better. And you always look when you're, when you're going with, look at it this way. When you go out in the world, you go out to compete. And when you come home to family, you come home to contribute. Does that make sense? So I, I find that guests that try to get on this show that don't really know who we are and what we're about, generally try, what they're looking to do is take something. And the people that come out of the community, what they're looking to do is to give something. And when you do, when, see, that's the thing. The beauty is you don't have to go out and take. I, I, I have an old saying I've said many times, you gotta, you got to give before you take. And, and the truth is when you give enough, people just give back. And that's what's great about this audience this is why people want to be on this show is because they know if they come and just give, that y'all will give back. That the right fits that are there for someone to gain a follower or a listener or a customer or a, you know something like that, it always just happens. And, and, and when we get people from this audience, they always come with that giving attitude. And it always works out for the best when we do. And I do occasionally find people that I bring on. It doesn't happen often, but like Gary Collins is a perfect example. But I knew when I reached out to him, I was reaching out to the kind of guy that was going to show up and start giving right from the beginning. The reason I'm bringing this up is I put out a post today in that email that we, I was talking about you all get today, if you're on the list. Um, we, we're looking for guests. We only are booked out, I think, three weeks right now. Uh, I know Patrick Rohrman's going to be on, I think not next week, but the week after that, and we might be free up after that. So uh, I've got some space. And I know another one came in, uh, Survival Punk James. Uh, he's going to be on. He's a good dude. I remember he visited my my place up in Arkansas years ago, and that's what I'm talking about in the community. So if you'd like to be on this show, fill out the guest form. I'm not going to promise you that we'll take everybody that applies, but we take most people. If you have a compelling the subject to talk about. You don't have to have a business. You don't have to be an expert. I think some of our best interviews have been people that are like, I'm just a person that's out, you know, and I'm, I'm building my homestead, and here's the things that I'm doing. I think people love hearing from that because they're like, I can be that. I am that person. Not like I can be that person. I am that person. So fill out the guest form. And remember, if you don't fill out the guest form, you don't get on the air. Don't send me an email and pitch me your idea. Don't ask me if you think it's a good, if I think it's a good fit. Fill out the guest form. It's designed to make your life and my life easier, 
and I could do with a little of my life being easier once in a while. I got a lot to do. So fill out the form. I've said this to people. If Jesus and Buddha both wanted to be on the air together, I'd say, boys, go fill out the form. Seriously. If they ain't getting you on without filling out the form, you ain't getting on without filling out the form. But really, guys, I do appreciate audience members coming on the air because I do feel that you guys show up and you give. And that's that's what I've tried to make this whole show built on all these years is giving. Give and give and give and give. And, you know, give a hundred times more than you ever asked back for. And, and your, your life is full of abundance. It's a, it's a permaculture principle. It's a life principle. It's a universal principle. Anyway, on that note, if you like the show and you do want to support us, one of the ways you can do that is by just doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You're probably going to buy something in the next week or two online. Hey, check out tspaz.com before you do. If you start there, you'll help support us no matter what you buy. But you'll also be able to find my daily reviews and items that I recommend. Today is a, is a little product. It's cheap. It's like nine bucks. It's made by a company called Winoma. These are double A to D battery adapters. They also make double A to C battery adapters. Why would you want such a thing? I hear some of you saying now. Well, because Stephen Harris and I have taught most of this audience to standardize with rechargeable double A and triple A batteries, because they're the batteries that are most used in your home. So when your, your remote control for your TV wears out, you pop your end-loop batteries out, you throw them in the charger, you pull a fresh set out, and boom. And you use, it's like eat what you store in store where you eat. Use, what, use your preps on a daily basis. That way you're comfortable with them. And D and C rechargeable batteries are just not a good economic proposition. So you already have your AA rechargeables, or you should. You pop a couple in here, you throw them in your D-cell mag light, and it works during an outage. And if you do the system the way Steve and I teach, then you can recharge double A's and triple A's until the power comes back on or the apocalypse comes. Whichever one happens first, you're good for that long or longer. I mean, the, the number of times you can recharge double A's and triple A's, you know, using your car, which should have a fuel gas tank and some reserve fuel, is, is just unbelievable. So you have that sustainability. Now, I do recommend if you have C and D cell devices, you do maintain a supply of C and D cell batteries for regular use. But in a situation where you need them to last you longer, you can rely on these things. Just put them in your blackout kit. Try them out once in a while. They will not last as long because there's not as much reserve in a couple double A's as there is in a full-size D. But they work just fine. The light is just as bright. And when it goes out, what do you do? You pop new batteries in and recharge the other ones. So check it out again. Winoma AA to size D battery adapters. There's size C in there. If you don't, if you're not set up to recharge AA's and AAA's yet, all the stuff that Steve and I recommend to do that is in this review as well. So check it out again. You can find it at tspaz.com or just go to the survivalpodcast.com. And again, remember check out our new Instagram. It's a Jack Life. Uh, it's really starting to become fun. My wife's kind of becoming addicted to it. I think uh, of, of chronicling my life, and she's. Really excited to be involved in the business. So a lot of you have like wanted to hear from her over the years. She's not big on getting on the air or something like that, but this is your chance to like see things the way Dorothy sees them, which is, well, if you're dealing with me, it's, it's going to be an adventure. Anyway, with that, let's go talk about our song of the day today. A lot of times the song of the day fits the show. This one doesn't fit it at all. We're in Elvis Presley week. Uh, it really doesn't fit anything we talked about today. This is one of Elvis's biggest hits ever. And it, it's not a happy song at all. It's in the ghetto. And uh, this 
this song really hits on a lot of things, and it was a difficult decision. Elvis really didn't want to do this song. He had been told by his manager over and over again that you, you shouldn't do any kind of issue songs. Because no matter what type of song you do, if you're pushing an issue, some people are going to be on the other side of it, and they're not going to like it. But when it came down to it, uh, one of the guys he was going to record the song with told him, he said, this is a hit, and if you don't want it, I'll take it. And Elvis said, no, nope, I'm going to do it. And he, he cut this song. And I think this song is one of those songs that, in today's day and age, we have polarized to a point where we maybe don't see the 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 wisdom in the middle ground anymore. And I think the reason a lot of people want to say that you know people are not a product of their environment or whatever, or they're, you know you, you have the same chance that anybody else does if you make something of your life and whatever, because there, one there's truth in it, but two, um, they fear the consequence of, of of conceding anything on that is being just an excuse for failure, an excuse for crime, an excuse for uh, being abusive or, or whatever, and it just isn't true. Let me frame it for you this way. When you see a young man, let's say someone in his late teens, early 20s, that's just killing it, he is respectful to the people in his life. He's working his ass off. Um, he walks upright. He holds doors. He does everything that you think a man should do, and he does it above his years. Do you not think that guy had pretty good parents? He, they raised him right. And because of that... He's a fine, upstanding person. I think everybody agrees with that. I don't think anybody objects to that. Okay. If raising a child right and teaching them the right way can make them a good person, cannot the complete opposite be true? That if a child is raised without a father or a child is raised you know, uh, in, 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 in poverty, a child is raised in the middle of drug abuse and physical abuse, that they might turn out to be kind of messed up as a person? And I think that it's it's really hard for some of us to get our heads around just how bleak the outlook of some people still is today in America. I still believe that they have incredible opportunity, but they have to see it. And when you are in the midst of absolute poverty and crime, and you don't see a way out, it's hard for you to see it. And I think those of us that have become successful... You know, not even worrying about the ghetto, not even worrying about poverty. I think we just need to once in a while think back before our break. You know, I think back to when, you know, I was I was working in a warehouse for six dollars an hour packing boxes and trying to get a raise somebody somebody to give me a job for eight dollars an hour. And 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 how limited my view was I'm intelligent, sure, but still my limit of what could I have? What could I do? And there really was a point in my life where a tripping moment happened. And I didn't have everything I wanted yet. I didn't even have most of what I wanted yet. I had a tripping point where I simply knew that I could. And everything changed. And many people in these dire circumstances... What they need more than anything else isn't some form of welfare or something like that or some program. They need whatever it is, whether it comes through a program or whether it comes through programming or whether it comes from a book or whether it comes from a mentor or no matter what it is, they need that tipping point where they know they actually, if they will take the right actions, they can have more than they ever imagined. 
And that's about the only way I see to solve the problem that's being talked about in this song. But we all, you know, with that being said, that doesn't mean we can turn away from the fact that the problem is there. And we shouldn't harden our hearts against things like that. No good comes from that. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. On a cold and gray Chicago morning, a poor little baby child is born in the ghetto. And his mama cries. Cause if there's one thing she don't need is another hungry mouth to feed in the ghetto. Now, people, don't you understand? Child needs a helping hand. He'll grow to be an angry young man someday. I take a look at you and me. Are we too blind to see? Or do we simply turn our heads and look the other way? Little boy with the running nose plays in the street as the cold wind blows in the ghetto. And his hunger burns. So he starts to roam the streets at night and he learns how to steal and he learns how to fight in the ghetto. Then one night in desperation, the young man breaks away. He buys a gun, he steals a car, tries to run, but he don't get far, and his mama cries. As a crowd gathers round, an angry young man face down in the street with a gun in his hand in the ghetto. And as her young man dies On a cold and gray Chicago morning Another little baby child is born In the ghetto And his mama cries